Happy Friday, Siege of New Hampshire listeners. At least from the stats, most of you download the episodes on the Friday it's released. If you're not listening on a Friday, I hope you're having a good day, whichever day of the week it is. Last week, we had the listener questions episode. This week is similar. A prepper friend of mine, Brian Hawkins of NextStepSurvival.com, had several questions about the stories, the process, and the characters. Instead of trying to write all that down, I figured that he and I could chat about it and I could let you listen in. The trouble with that plan was that we chatted for almost an hour and a half, so I had to edit down the audio file to remove the questions and responses that were already covered in last week's episode, as well as to take out some off-topic banter. The result, however, was still 45 minutes. Yeah, sorry about that. Guess that means I should be quiet and get on with it. So, here goes. Hi, this is Brian Hawkins with Next Step Survival, and I'm here today with Mick Rowland from mick-rowland.com, who is an author of six books that I'm aware of, a five-book series called Siege of New Hampshire, and then a, a solo book entitled Escape from the City. And I really enjoyed, I enjoy all his books, but I really liked Escape from the City. We're just going to go back and forth. So I'm not an author, I'm just a blogger. So we're going to just look at how Mick puts his, uh, his thoughts into a book form and, and makes it interesting for us. I, th- I thought I'd just bu- uh, hit it off to you right, right from the start there. And if you wanted a little synopsis of your books there, especially the series, The, C- the Siege of New Hampshire. Okay. Well, if somebody hasn't read it, it's a lightly post-apocalyptic fiction story. I mean, it's not the uh, the zombie apocalypse kind of a story. It's a grid-down prepper fiction told primarily through the viewpoint of the main character, Martin Simmons. And he starts off in book one, right after the power outage, he's trying to get home. Adventures ensue. And then once he gets home, then you have to deal with life without the power grid. And then books three, four, and five just sort of continue the ramifications of if you're stuck in a grid-down world, there's all kinds of stuff you have to contend with. That's it thus far with the book five. Book six is in progress, but it's not done yet. Okay, so, and and it, and it really is a top-notch book. I hate to say that I was surprised, but, <laughs> and, and, and I really wasn't, not with the books, but I was surprised at how well you came out is your own narrator. So a lot of people can't do that. And a lot of people don't know it, but me and you and Todd, we all sat down together and, and looked at that option. I don't know how, how many details you want to go into, but you, you improvised a lot on creating a studio in your home to record your books on voice and to put them up on Audible. And I had no idea how easy or how hard it was to submit and get approved on Audible. I had no clue. But what I do know is from the first sentence you spoke on on your books, it sounded like a professional narrator right out the gate. There was no there was no like build up. You know, when we go back and look at our first blog post, we're like, oh, end up red in the face thinking or or not angry, but you know, embarrassed about the quality of it. And then hopefully you improve. But you just was unnatural. So. Can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, how, how I mean, you're changing your voice in the middle of it and everything, and you're using some improvised sound effects, which adds, I don't know why other narrators don't do that. 
not very many of them. It's almost like you have a professional studio to where you have sound effects, but I'm pretty sure you're improvising there. Well, there's a lot of that. As for the uh, the narrator thing, I yeah, I had some trepidations about that because you read sort of pro and con of it. Audible, they try to encourage authors to be their own narrators. And they say, I think rightly, that the author knows what the story is about. And so it's easier for them to put life into it. On the other hand, I've also read where they say uh, the author shouldn't be the narrator because they tend to overly ham it up. I haven't heard that, but then maybe those guys just don't get published. I don't know. But I can see where it would be a little tempting to sort of wax Shakespearean while you're trying to read your own stuff because you're, you're impressed with your own writing or something. So I can see where that would be a fail. And certainly the other audiobooks that I've listened to, they've all got, you know, James Earl Jones style narrating voices. And I thought, well, that's not me. I just kind of got my voice and it's just me. I'm a little disappointed that way that I don't have that deep, sonorous sort of voice, but not a lot I can do about it. I mean, there's even things on the internet where you can say how to lower your voice. And I thought, yeah, that doesn't work. I suspect one of those booming voices would probably struggle a little bit on the female characters like, you know, Susan and that. Yeah, I was listening to uh, after I decided to try to narrate the books, well, try to narrate the books that I thought, well, I've got female characters. What do other authors do? And so I was listening to some audio books and I thought, well, OK, it seems to be accepted that the male narrator just raises his voice a little bit and that becomes the female voice and i thought well okay if i mean that's acceptable then i can do that but then i was also trying to give the female well all the characters i guess give them a little more distinctive voice so it's not just there's ordinary me for the male characters and then half an octave higher me for all the female characters and they all run together so i've been trying to give them a little different intonation so that they sound a little different. I mean, there's only so much you can do with your voice anyway, but I try. I think you're making it work, but also we're not doing a side-by-side -side comparison while we're in the moment of listening to the audio, the audible version of it. So maybe they sound more alike than what I'm assuming, but you know, I, I know who you're speaking as at the time, so that probably helps. Well, that's kind of the goal is just to, in the reader's mind, to have the voices separate enough that you can kind of tell who's talking, even if you go back and listen, say, well, Heather sounds an awful lot like Trish, but you never hear the two of them together. So it sort of doesn't matter. Right. So we need a challenge is what you're saying to where they're talking to one another. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you need to try to make them a little bit more different if you can. I'm going to throw you a little curveball here. So on your author bio, you speak of a, what, what sets you onto more of a prepper lifestyle. And I guess I should have brought that up. Mick is a fellow prepper, and he lives in a more of a self-reliant type of community in New Hampshire. We won't tell you where. Uh, I'll post his address in the notes. <laughs> but you mentioned a dorm in the 90s that set you off onto that world of prepping. You got stranded with uh, the power outage with no power and no water for several days. I'm wondering if that wasn't the same time frame for me because we lost our power and it spread across from the East Coast somewhere and through part of Canada and I believe ended here in Michigan where I'm at. And we were without power for several days too. And some places maybe up to a week. Was that a widespread power outage? Like, you know, I don't know how wide that one was. It was a 
a winter ice storm. It wasn't like the uh, 2003 power outage where, you know, a whole chunk of the East Coast went down because of a failure in the grid, which was more of a maintenance issue. The the 90s storm that I'm talking about in the bio is more of a, a winter ice storm that just took out power. Maybe it was more regional. But, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you kind of don't know or care because it basically means I'm I'm cold and I don't have any water. Right. If, okay, uh, so it was 2003 that that occurred. The one I'm talking, I always say, every time I mention it on my blog or something, I always have to Google it and go back <laughs> and, and research the date because I'm horrible with dates. All right, so that's cool. So you, uh, you're way more prepared for a power outage and water, so I'm assuming that you've got backup plans and all that for another power outage, oh, extended yeah. power outage. Yeah, after that storm, because that was kind of a wake-up call, there was a lot of sort of suburban complacency that everything just worked, so why bother with it? And you just go on with your life and fret over what's going to be on TV that night and, you know, the important stuff. Right. Now, when the power went out, we didn't have heat because we had a propane furnace, so you had to have power for the fan. It's a, a separate well, so we didn't have water. But we did have the fireplace. So we were able to make fire and everybody slept in the living room, which was about all that the fireplace would heat. And we were melting snow in buckets beside the fireplace to have water. Yeah, that was enough to get through. And we had obviously not just down to our last can of beans in the cupboard. So we were able to uh, hook over the open fire in the fireplace, just pots that were not exactly precious cookware. So they could sit in there and get black. You know, you, we got by and it was almost adventurous. In fact, the kids for many years later would ask if we can have a no electricity night where we basically turn off everything and have the fireplace going and we play uh, play board games by lamp oil light. So That's they thought it was cool. a great adventure. Well, I guess it kind of was. After that, then I decided, nah, there's there's got to be a better way to be ready for that sort of thing because it happens maybe every other year or so. So that kind of pushed me into being more purposefully prepared instead of relying on improvisation. Nice. Do any of your children live more of a self-reliant lifestyle from that? I think so. Uh, my son, I think, is kind of a closet prepper. I was at his house uh, a while back, and I saw he was working on a shelving project in his basement. So what wasn't on the shelves anymore was like, 52 gallon jugs of water that, you know, he was, he was storing water. I hadn't seen it before because it was on shelves and sort of out of sight, out of mind, but he's got a generator and I think he even hooked up propane into his fireplace so he can make at least a, a gas flame or heat, which they did. I think they lost power. Oh, that's right. They did. They lost power a couple of years ago in the winter. He got a, a cheap generator from a neighbor of his and started using that, and that was all fine. But then it seized up and died because the guy had refurbished it himself, but he hadn't done a very good job. So because he didn't have the generator, then they didn't have heat. So he had his gas fireplaces, the heat, and he was kind of going through a mini version of what we went through as a family. But yeah, I think he's he's kind of of the prepper mindset, at least as much as a uh, a busy career person with two kids can devote to it anyway. But the, uh, did you have any writing background before you decided to start writing books like professionally? 
kind of, uh, not like college trained. I mean, there were some courses on writing, but usually they wanted you to write things that were sort of not very inspiring and you just had to do it for the exam. But yeah, you still end up learning some things. On a more professional level, I was doing a lot of interpretive writing for exhibits that would go in like zoos and aquariums and museums. The uh, I was one of the people who wrote, you know, when you're looking on a panel and it tells you all about Cleopatra's dress or something, you know, I was I was doing that kind of writing, what's on those text panels. And it was interesting because it was always different, but it was challenging because you had to try to get a lot out in 50 words or less. Because A, there's not a lot of room. Nobody's going to give you a, you know, a four by eight sheet of graphic space to write your entire story. And the public are pretty unforgiving. If you haven't gotten to the point by 50 words, they've moved on. So it was kind of a challenging bit of writing to write interpretive text because you got to be engaging, get the point across quickly and be succinct about it. I was doing a lot of that professionally. So not, I wasn't trained for it, but I was doing it because I worked for a small firm and there were only three of us. They, they weren't going to write it, so I was the writer. That's pretty interesting. Uh, no one ever thinks about who writes that or is it who's tasked to write that type of what you call interpretive writing. Interpretive so, text. Yeah, it's, interpretive text. it's a different sort of market. I mean, if you're in a museum and you're reading the stuff, you can kind of tell when it was written by somebody who is trying to be nice to you and make it engaging and informative. Or it was written by the guy who did his PhD thesis on the topic, and he loves it. And so you get 500 words in four-point type, and yeah. you know, it makes your head hurt. So you just, no, no, no. Move on. So was that a roadblock for you, the interpretive text, when it comes to long-form novel writing, where now you have to come up with a lot of extra detail and a lot of descriptive type of writing? Yeah, I don't think it was a hindrance. I mean, I obviously wrote more than 50 words, but I think it helped for kind of getting to the point or being more judicious in words. I prefer to have the writing be of a style that flows. Uh, one of the things I do after I've written a section, like a chapter or whatever, is I'll read it out loud. Usually when you're reading it out loud is where you'll stumble over something that was awkward or badly phrased. I mean, it might have looked good. And I mean, who doesn't like to throw in a forsooth now and then? Right. But, you know, when you're reading it out loud, you you trip over that sort of thing. You really ought to fix. So I do that to try and streamline it, make the writing easier to go through without thinking about it. I do that too myself. I, I, I'll have my wife read it out loud. She rolls her eyes every time. I'm like, I'm tired <laughs> when you read this. So I'll have her read my blog posts out loud while I follow along in the, in the WordPress editing page so that I can quickly change things. And that's also where I find, because she's good at reading what it says and not what her mind tells her. It says, I'll, I'll proof my, read my own. And I'll skip right over where I put the instead of there because my mind won't see it. And she'll see it. And if she doesn't catch it because I'm just following word by word and trying not to listen to the story, I'll literally look at every word and I'll catch a lot of mistakes. I'm sure it's the, the blog is just splattered with you know, inaccuracies and punctuation and misspelled words. But we do, we do catch a lot of that and it takes that outside, you know, that reading out loud aspect of it. So that's helpful. So 
I wonder if that interpretive text isn't what made you so um, aware of our attention spans are very short. And you seem to be cognitive of that because when you have a long chapter, and for anybody that doesn't know this, um, you can listen to mixed books on Audible, but you can also, he's also reading them for us chapter at a time on his podcast, which is very interesting. So when you have a long chapter, you'll, you'll break it up. You're just super short and easy to digest, not only just the writing style, but the length of it. And if it, if it extends past what you think people are willing or want to listen to, it seems like you break it up. And I was, I wonder if that's not from that interpretive text experience. It could be. Even other podcasts that I listen to, which were not fiction necessarily, that I've noticed that something that's in that half hour to 40 minute range, that's a good brain full of information. If you go on for four hours, you're going to lose people. Yeah, yeah it could yeah. have come somewhat from that. And a lot of a lot of uh, podcasters have gone the other direction. How so? Like they've gone to like the three hour format. You know, it's just like you download it, and it's like, are you kidding me? Three hours? I don't have three hours for this. I don't want to mention any names or anything because I don't want to put anybody on the spot. But it's more of the the famous podcasters or popular podcasters that may have came from an, an outside world. You know, like news media that type of thing. Mm. The Joe Rogan style. I think. And I think he, his goes on forever. And I think a lot of people like, oh, it looked, for, it worked for Joe Rogan. I'm going to try it myself. But we, it's, it's difficult to fit that. And some of them are daily, so a daily three-hour podcast. And I just can't come up with that type of time. And it, mm. you know, it's just even, even though I'm driving, I still can't. Well, I don't know that I designed it that much because the uh, the chapters in the books existed before the podcast. The chapters, eh, because they tend to be like four to 6,000 words each in the spoken form, they tend to be a half hour, 45 minutes. I've had a couple chapters that were longer, like an hour, and I thought, yeah, that's too long. And so those I would break up into a part one and part two. Right. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. And it's uh, a lot of people can probably get through a chapter on their way to work if they get stuck in traffic or have a longer drive. Yeah. I guess I could kind of see that, that uh, for a podcast, it's a lot easier to have half an hour, 45 minutes during your day that you've got to do something else like commute. But three hours? Yeah, I don't usually have three hour chunks that aren't assigned. Right. It's asking a lot, especially if you have, a you know, like I do, where you have a half a dozen different podcasts that you listen to every every day. See, um, I mean, you have five books in the siege in New Hampshire, and right now on your podcast, you're you're reading Susan's Bridge, right? Book four, book four, and, and you have one more for the podcast. Is there a book six coming? Yes, I'm currently and writing should, that one. Do you have a set ending point for that, or or you, will you just continue to to write those as the the reader's interest? Basically, are you going to let the readers decide how long that lasts? Or? I had one reader slash listener who was suggesting I should go to book 10. I guess it depends on your audience. But as for an end point, it's kind of interesting that book one started out, it had an end point in mind, or I had an end point. The book didn't have an end point. The, I had an end point in mind, get Martin home after the power outage. And that was kind of my, ta-da, I'm done, ending. 
I started with the obvious ending. He was always going to get home. He wasn't going to die halfway through. Uh, so he was going to get there. And then the rest of the story was figuring out, well, what would happen to him on the way? And then kind of mental experiment through that. I've covered that in an interview with Todd before, so I won't go over that ground again. But, you know, book one started off as its own end goal, and I thought I was going to be done. And then with book five sort of explored again the uh, ramifications of a grid-down world, and it explored a little bit more of the Susan character's situation in Vermont, where she's stuck. And you took a, you took a, her character as probably one of the most unliked characters in the series to one of the favorites. Well, that wasn't, yeah, that wasn't really a a goal to start off with. Certainly not in in book one. I hadn't really imagined her as becoming the sort of impromptu survivalist. To be honest, she was kind of there as a travel companion for Martin so that he wouldn't be talking to himself. So she was there for dialogue. Well, that's not enough reason to exist. So she, uh, she got a little more depth. But yeah, her character arc became more important to the series where she went from helpless city girl to capable survivalist. But you can see that it wasn't an overnight transformation. She didn't read a book and become that way. It was a lot of hard knocks, and a lot of it was just being stubborn. And a lot of it out of necessity. Yeah. She found herself in a situation where she had to, she was the only one to make the calls because she was the only one there. And now she, without trying to give any of the book away, but now she has other people depending on Yep. Yeah, so a lot of that was out of necessity. And uh, you just mentioned structure and outline. You want to go in a little bit more depth on, on how you develop your structure and outline when you're, when you're, first let me just, let me step back a little bit. So because as a blogger, everybody does it different. And I always take and start doing an outline by headers, right? So I'll, I'll write some headings, you know, like I want to talk about, if I'm talking about first aid kits, I want to talk about, you know, basic and then the trauma. And, and, and I'll, I'll just write these headers and then I'll fill in the gap. I never know where the blog post is going to go until I'm finished with my research and get it. And sometimes it's way too long and it's just a mess. I have no uh, clear path in my mind. It, it's, it, 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 I say on paper, but it comes out on, the, on an electronic version of our, our notepad. Do you think these things through mentally before, before that? I mean, if you, do you give a lot of thought as to the, as for the story before you start outlining the, the actual content? Kind of. I guess I'm asking if you have, is, is your imagination extended that deep into the storyline? It's kind of a combination because I will try to have an ending in mind. So it's not just kind of a rambling story that never ends. But even with that ending, once you've picked an ending, then... I try to work back and say, well, if that's where I want the story to go, what are some necessary steps that are going to get me there? And those become sort of major increments. Once the story gets going, it starts not exactly right itself. But once you start actually writing something, the text starts to suggest that, well, then why isn't this happening? Or what about that over there? And I wouldn't, I hadn't thought about that in the outline. So to some extent, the story, when you had mentioned imagination, to some extent, the story starts to take on a life of its own. And the details, they kind of get filled in as, as I go. So I haven't got it all, like some writers say, they had it all completely formed in their head and all they had to do was write it down. 
Yeah, that, that's not how it's working for me. Instead, I've got sort of stepping stones that I want to get to from A to B to C to D, but I don't bother getting more detailed than that because as I'm writing, it's going to fill itself in. So it sounds like it's more like trial and error on your part. So you do you study other other writings, other writing styles, or you just go your own way? Well, I do go my own way. Uh, I guess you can't help but study when you're reading somebody else's writing. If something's working for you, you think, well, that, that worked out pretty well. And usually it's the other side. When something isn't working out really well, it sort of stands out and I make mental note, okay, don't do that. One of those don't do that's that is pretty common, actually, when I read other prepper fiction is the writer is really, really into guns. And so he'll fill his writing with lots of detail about the guns. And as a reader, I don't need to know that. You know, it's it's kind of superfluous detail. The people who are really into guns, they must just keep eating it up because authors keep doing that. There was one that I was listening to it over the Christmas break. The author describes how the main character is kind of ambushed by somebody when he's rummaging, salvaging in a, an abandoned store. He had the, the main character pull out his classic Colt 45 1911 uh, with blued metal frame and checkered walnut grips. And as I'm reading or listening to that, I'm thinking, why did I need to know all that? Now, he liked it. He, you know, Obviously, he put it in, and there's obviously people who like their classic Colts who would go, oh, that's a great gun. I really like that. I don't know. But when I was reading it or listening to it, I thought, that was useless information. You know, just saying he pulled his pistol, I got it. So we can move on. And actually, I don't know if it was that same author. No, it was a different author. Uh, and it kind of stumped me that he was describing there was some traffic crash that the main character was a witness to, and he was trying to do first aid. And the author went on and on describing this state trooper. You know, he described him as broad shoulders, and he had big biceps as big as your thigh, and he had a tattoo like this or that. And he was so much detail about this state trooper that I thought, well, this must be important. But after the crash, the trooper's gone. He never reappears. It was entirely useless information, but he spent a couple of pages talking about the details of this trooper with his sunglasses and short haircut. Was, I don't know why I was hearing all about that. Uh, it's a little misleading because it, you had it as, as a reader thinking he, you were just being introduced to a new main character in, in the book and suddenly he's gone. Yeah. And otherwise, why I give all that detail? He must be yeah, a main character uh, coming into the into the story. Right. So that's, you know, when I'm reading or listening to uh, other writers as fiction, that's one of the things that I've kind of come away with is a don't do this is too much detail where I don't need it or where the reader doesn't need it. You don't want to have sort of no detail. I mean, I try to include a fair amount of atmospheric detail, like, is it warm? Is it cold? How do you know it's warm? How do you know it's cold? If it's a hot day, can you describe parts of it being a hot day without just saying it was a hot day? That conveys the idea of it so that you get a, more of a feel rather than just the flat words of it. So those details, eh, I'll put those in. Like in book three, where it was wintertime. You know, try and project some of what that cold was like, which ironically, I was writing that in the summer. I really had to remember what cold felt like. 
because I didn't feel cold at the time. And it seems pretty obvious that you're just because I know where you're, you know, your location. So you're where you live helped you understand what cold really is in, in your area. So someone in you know, Miami or something and never left Miami, they may not know what a New Hampshire storm actually is or, you know, the things that you have. You, you can describe it a lot better than you could probably, you know, live in south of the equator or something. Yeah. You know? Well, hopefully so. Yeah. So it sounds like you did uh, do some study, but it, for the most part, you're kind of just just going on your own gut feeling and, and what you what you like, and it seems to be working. You, you're getting good feedback, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's another thing I think is cool. The way you you ask for feedback, you just did a a, a survey type of a thing, and you know, for, asking for responses from your readers and and listeners, and you make it real easy for us to interact with 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 you as the author rather than hiding in behind editors or whatever the people are that book, do bookings and stuff like that i mean you didn't post your phone number down there but you make you, you make yourself available to the to the reader and the listener so that's really cool. well i try to so um you get it when you're getting into so i try not to, to give any of the story but each chapter seems to, or each book seems to have a little bit of chaos coming from outside a community. I feel the lifestyle that you live on your own homestead with a, a community of people that are probably more self-reliant than, say, Detroit. And your church, and, and I have a feeling that you had a lot to do with their self-reliant type of mindset as well, but the outsiders come in in your storyline and or I'm not saying they're coming in and getting everybody, but they're not as trustworthy. So it sounds like a lot of this is off your own experience. You're, what, what you've experienced, of course, you haven't had a, a really deep, you know, COVID and all that, but you haven't had a real SHTF type of situation. It seems like you suspect that a lot of outside people could be risky. Is that is that where that's coming from? With this, yeah, or, or, or is it just more on an interest? So I guess my question. Let me make that a little bit more precise. So do you think that when uh, something really goes bad, things get turned sideways? Do you think one of the short of the government or you know the police or whatever you know the authorities? Beyond that, do you think that outside community or strangers coming into the community are one of our biggest threats? I tend to, because if you've got your neighbors and you've developed any kind of a relationship with them, you've kind of got the fabric of a community. When strangers come in, you know, they don't have any vested interest in the community. They just see people as resources for their use. So there tends to be that kind of predator detachment is a whole lot easier. So that's fairly easy. I think I had in book two, the uh, gang members from uh, Manchester come riding in. Now, theirs was kind of like more of a, a revenge match kind of a thing. But, you know, that's people for you. Trouble from the outside, I think, comes in a lot less humane and compassionate because they don't know anybody. So, you know, they're going to come in and see people as strangers to be dealt with rather than fellow humans to get along with. Like when Martin was was out hunting for squirrel and and he runs, what was that like? The new word for hippie? I forgot. <laughs> I don't know. But, but yeah, I mean, 
but he seemed to be upfront. You know, he was he was quick to try to explain. You cross this road here on my property, and that seems a little harsh. But considering the circumstances, you know, I mean, it's kind of necessary at that point. I had imagined that if it got down to survivally type scenario, that whatever's your land, you you're going to forage for your own wild edibles and beech nuts in that case, uh, and squirrels and whatever. That you don't want somebody coming and eating your stuff. So you start creating boundaries and say, you stay on your side of the road and I'll stay on my side. How much research goes into some of the details when you're writing? So I'll give you an example. Susan has a throwing stick where she literally hunts with. And up until I read your book, I've never heard of that. So is that something that you just came across and thought, I'm going to add that to the book? Or is there... Or were you researching alternative methods of hunting or how how does that type of thing come about? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was looking for alternative methods of hunting uh, with the idea that if you were in a sort of grid down brave new world, bullets and gunpowder are going to be very limited. So you're not just going to go around firing your 30-30 all the time, as well as the fact that gunshots attract lots of attention. So I was looking for alternative methods of hunting. And not a bow and arrow because that's a little too fussy to be improvising. So I found about uh, the throwing stick, which is not exactly like the Australian Aborigines with their boomerang, but it's kind of on that same notion that you're basically throwing something to knock out the animal. But then, you know, a little more research and even from my own hunting experience, when you don't exactly finish off the animal with your shot. Now, like when you're using a pellet gun, yeah, you know, you don't always terminate them immediately. So sometimes you do have to run over and step on their head. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise they, they get away. And plus, even the, the little details seem to, so it's obvious that you've, done, you've been out in the woods and hunted because when you're talking about how the squirrel's standing on the tree and he scurries around the tree and he's looking and he's looking at her and stuff and it's like, I've never noticed if a squirrel looks at me when I'm walking past it, but I guess they do. We got squirrels jumping around all over the place, trying to keep from off the ground because I have my dog back there, and my dog just runs from tree to tree as they leap across branches. I guess hoping that one day he's going to miss a branch and fall down to him, but he's constantly waiting for that that to happen. I can't imagine hitting one, but I, I'm. Have you tried it? Or I mean, it's a legitimate type of. Yeah, if you of, uh, you can look up YouTube videos on it, and oh really? Yeah, and uh, and see it in action. I've practiced with it a little bit, but I don't have really enough targets, live targets, to get any better at it. And I've got too much else to do, so I haven't put a whole lot of time into it. But yeah, that's something that I researched because that's you know it, the story needed her to be a hunter, but not with a gun. That was research to fill a gap. Nice. Well, you also have a blog. So do, is that something that you would put in a blog too? Yeah. Separate from the, yeah. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, as much as it's practical, uh, if there's something that I want to work into the story, if it's something that I could do, then I want to do it. So that when I'm writing about it, I'm writing from experience. Uh, an example being the pine fries that I had read about people eating tree bark it made no sense to me. And uh, I mean, even the uh, the Adirondack Indians were, that's what their name was, was basically bark eaters. 
Uh, that's what they did. And I thought, well, okay, so you can say you could eat bark, but what is that really? So I had to look it up. That's back to the research thing again. And then after I researched it, I thought, well, I've got some white pine. So I really ought to make pine fries just to see what that's actually like. So that when I'm writing about the characters going through the process, it's real because that's what you do. You know, even to the point of how you have to cut them across the grain and then you want to fry them so that they get crispy. Otherwise, they're really fibery. I mean, it's like gum that'll never end if you don't cut them the right way. Where it's possible to actually do the thing, I do it. That way, I, I really know what it is. That's really so, yeah, cool. sometimes those do become blog posts. I think I did one on pine fries. That's kind of what I had mind when I was when I was asking. Uh, other things like the uh, make your own snowshoes out of the hemlock branches. Right. I thought, well, I've read that you can do that, but I should go and do that just to make sure. Because you know how sometimes the internet is full of passed on wisdom that nobody's actually done, but they keep right. passing it on as as though it's uh, just a, an accepted fact. Like Todd was just mentioning the, the rule of threes and the boo-boo kit. Oh, I can't stand to hear the boo-boo kit. Another reason I was asking, because earlier in, in, the, in the series, a character named Karen was talking to Susan, I believe, about putting people into boxes, sorting people out. You, you, you want to expand on that a little bit? Because that's actually something that I looked at and thought, man, I wonder if I could like develop something like that into a blog post, because that struck me as one of the most profound things that I've heard in a book in a long time. I know it sounds simple. You know, it's just like the guy puts people in the boxes. He's a grouchy old man. But it's very important because, you know, people are looking at us as a resource potentially. And being able to put people into boxes, whether or not it's a thread or a friend or whatever box we decide. And I and I was looking at it from putting, you know, I, I, I actually wrote a little outline on my boxes and I took the, I made my own boxes. I didn't use Karen's boxes. So do you want to expand on that a little bit, where that came from and, and, and how it made its way into your book? Yeah, I was exposed to the idea that not everybody's going to react the right way when something happens that there are people who become the deer in the headlights type, that they just sort of freeze up. I mean, you hear about that too. There's fight or flight or freeze. So there's three boxes right there. That there are people who just don't do anything. Also, as part of security team training, you know, we, they talk about that when something happens, there's going to be a whole lot of people standing around having no idea what to do. Or the 80-20 uh, the rule that you hear about, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And you've seen it before. Imagine that when something happens, there's the sort of person that jumps into action and does something. And while a whole lot of other people are standing around, of course, nowadays they stand around with their phone recording, whatever it was. So everybody becomes a journalist. So 20% are doing something, 80% are journalists. Then you have a percentage of people that are taking advantage of the situation and doing wrong, you know. Yeah, you know, this we see on the the riots and stuff. All of a sudden, oh yeah, know, people are using that. So, Charon's so. boxes were kind of a, a distillation of a lot of those different analyses that people react differently to the same circumstance or the same situation. When it comes down to a something, you know, people start to uh, categorize or they fall into categories. So I had the Charon character pick out his categories. Of course, it didn't fit Susan terribly well, but that's okay. That's how the story goes. Right. And and she she moved from that, the sheep to the sheepdog. Yeah. A lot. And I think 
Karen had a lot of influence on that. So speaking of Karen, that that's a male with the name yeah. Karen, and it's C H A R O N. Do you do you want to tell buddy what where that character comes from? Or yeah, actually, uh, his name is the guy. I guess you'd say who in Greek mythology, he's the guy who's got the boat that crosses the river Styx to take the uh, take the dead to the underworld. So he was the uh, the guide to the underworld in Greek mythology. So that's where the name comes from. And that was just because he was being the guide to Susan. So I thought, well, let's go with something kind of ominous. And how much do those those little, I guess some people would call them Easter eggs, but how, how much of those are in, in, in your writings? Well, I like when, to think when, it's when you a, That's just me. When you choose a name, you don't, do you just, oh, that sounds like a good name for that person. Or do you have somebody in the back, in the back of your mind? Somebody that you've had, I, I, you've mentioned this before in the past, but do most of your main characters are loosely based on somebody in your life? It's easier to do that way, to do it that way, to take a character and sort of think of somebody you know. Not, it doesn't have to be a slavish copy of that character, uh, but like the, uh, the Candace character in the earlier stories, you know. There's a woman in town that goes to the town meetings and she's all about champion of the underdog and the little guys and we all need to be compassionate. Now, she doesn't look anything like the Candace character that I described, but I started off with her and thought, yeah, there's somebody who's kind of socially active and has an agenda and she would make a good quizzling. Uh, the Candace character was adapted off of somebody and well, quite a few of the earlier characters were adapted off of somebody. Is there a chance that Martin is based on you? Well, I wouldn't say that because no? he's heroic. <laughs> well, if we have to write about ourselves. I guess. Well, of course, the seeds of the book one story were me musing about how I would get home from work. So in that sense, the Martin in book one is kind of patterned after my particular situation. But I didn't really set out to make Martin be me, or that I'm Martin. Uh, as the story went on, he actually kind of took on a life of his own, and he wasn't really asking me for any advice. But Martin is based on a character, though, right? Or, yeah. You know, in, 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 or a person in your life. To some extent, he was kind of created as not anti-hero, but how in a lot of prepper fiction... The hero is ex-military, super buff, uh, born supremacy kind of guy who's got all the ninja skills and you know can shoot a fly's eye out at 100 yards. And I thought, well, how about if we make him not that? So he's much more of an everyday person who makes bad choices and gets beat up a little now and then. I mean, it, it's, it's almost like I don't like the Martin character because I have him get beat up at least once a book, I think. Well, it's more true to to the average person, you know. So I guess my last question is, and I, and I kind of touched on this before, but when you're going about your day, you know, throughout your day and you see or hear something, not not necessarily from listening to somebody else's podcast, because personally, when, when I want to write about a topic, if I think about something, I never go and look, read other blog posts about that topic because I'll end up robbing from them, not intentionally, but I'll, I, I want to avoid any conflict in, in, in where it looks like I took any of their, 
their content. So when I want to write about chariots in the sky, I'm not going to, which is just pulled it from the top of my head, but I'm not going to search chariots in the sky and start looking, reading other blog posts. So I'm not saying that you would, you would take anything from anything, anything you heard, but when you're going throughout your day to day and you see something or hear something or think something, then how often do you think, or, or stop and write that down and say, this is going to go in later on in a, in, in a book. I do keep a couple of sort of running word files in a research folder where I keep little nuggets of ideas as I think of something. There's a whole lot of them in there that I haven't used yet. I never really know if it's going to be useful in a book or not. Yeah, if I'm coming across something, then uh, I'll try to make a note of it because otherwise I'm going to forget. I, I, I do that with the blog posts. I have this text file just like you're talking about it. I like it because I can copy and paste right off of that without any type of formatting, following, you know, getting pasted along with the uh, with the word text. But the, if I see a word, you know, or think of something, sometimes I'll write a comment on something and I'll like, okay, that was pretty smart of me. And then I'll take that and I'll paste it just for later on. So now what I've got is I've got this huge long list of things that I almost never go back to. But those are intended to make me look smart on my blog later on. I bought a couple of books on how to write, you know, to, to be a better writer. And just as a blogger, I have no intention of writing a novel or anything like that. So I'll just uh, hand it off to you. And if, if you have any uh, anything, any final things you want to mention before we close no, it out? I think we've covered more than I thought we were going to. <clears throat> I appreciate you taking yeah. the time out to do a little question and answer. Oh, it's my, my pleasure. I had the questions and you were willing to answer them. So, um, so we, we'll close this up. I appreciate everybody that's watching and listening. I'm Brian Hawkins, stepsurvival.com. And that's Mick Rowland, author, podcaster, blogger, survivalist, kind of prepper. So he's all part of our community and, he, and he's very active in our community. And I really want to say thank you, Mick. Appreciate all of that. All thank right, you. We'll see you guys. All right. Thank you. Bye now. Well, there you go. A few more questions and responses. Next week, we'll begin Chapter 1 of Book 5, Critical Spring. Talk to you then.